0: He's scared of the immunocompromised patient.
1: That's what the discussion is going to be about, whether there's any science to it or not.
2: Who's on the hook there, the radiologists or me?
0: They get pneumococcal bacteremia. They have a mortality rate that's on the order of Ebola infection.
3: 47-year-old people are not supposed to die.
0: This is most emergency physicians' nightmare. There.
1: That would be a horrendous error. If you're going to have a psych floor, either have it on the 12th floor so they're dead, or have it on the second floor so they're not hurt.
3: I don't think it would be unreasonable to ask them, have you contemplated harming
2: yourself? Do you know the type of physicians I'm talking about?
3: Hello, welcome. Rick Bucata, Greg Henry, Mel Herbert. Coming to you with a January 2010 issue of Risk Management Monthly.
1: It's not fair. It's not fair. You guys are sitting in Southern California... And I'm here in Michigan. It's four degrees where I
2: am,
3: Rick. Right. Well, it's four degrees where you are. We have about 70 more of them right here. <laughs>
2: yeah, and We've got all your degrees. It's, it's
1: kind of hot here. Don't rub it in. Move along. No,
2: yeah, I've we- got to rub it in. I've got to rub it in right now. We have no money in this state. It's a complete disaster. But I'm looking out the window right now, and it is the most perfect day you can possibly imagine. I'm sorry. Yes, I-,
3: I would agree. Hey. I'm at my son's house, Ricky Babalu. We're setting this up. You have to bear with us, folks, because we may wind up talking over each other a little bit because we're doing this on Skype. Greg is miserable in Michigan. I'm in Monrovia, California, and Mel's in Woodland Hills. But normally we get together physically, but we haven't been able to do it this month. But I think we have some in-persons coming up. So bear with us. I can't get to see Greg's face when he contorts it, when I say something that he doesn't like kind of thing. So we might step on each other well here 's the menu for today 's recording. The appetizer greg 's going to give us a series of close claim cases that we think are pretty hot second we 're going to do a little bit of good Samaritan, not too much, but a little good Samaritan. The main course is infectious disease emergencies we 're going to do a little bit about some antibiotic related problems that relate not to allergies but to uncommon but serious conditions that they can be associated with and then we 're going to follow up with the peace day resistance. An interview with Dave Talon who is probably the most well-known emergency physician slash ID doctor in the country.
1: We're not worthy Rick. That's the We're plan. not worthy to have David Talon on this show. <laughs> and we'll
3: follow up with we have a few letters and then we're going to do the wine of the month. So let's get started here
1: with Greg. You've got a couple of cases for us. Yeah I've got three or four of them here Rick. Now before I start this don't slay the messenger. Mel always has a heart attack when I talk about these cases and wants to quit medicine. <laughs> I don't make the decisions. I just call them like I see them and present them out there. Our first case, and these are closed cases, these are public records. So any names we use, it's okay, because they are published in the public record. This is Myers versus High V Incorporated, which I think is the emergency group, Jenny Edmonds Hospital, and an emergency doc who will actually, for purposes of this, remain nameless. This is a very common case. He sees a mid-seventies-year-old woman who slipped, fallen, and hurt her leg in the emergency department. She's taken to the hospital. It's after hours. He looks at the x-ray and says, you don't have a fracture, and says, good news, bones not broken, you're fine, yada, 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 yada. The patient goes home. She is not warned on any of the instructions to keep her weight off that leg. No other instructions are given. Obviously, she comes back two days later. The x ray taken, by the way, is read by the radiologist the next day. There's some question as to how this information is passed. And then she comes back with more pain, and now she's got a displaced fracture. So now what we have is a patient who was told there was no fracture. We have a reading that went nowhere. We have a return visit. And of course, the orthopod said, if only we'd seen you before it would have been a more simpler repair this by the way is state of Iowa and there was a hundred and sixty thousand dollar verdict for the state of Iowa that's a lot of money Iowa is a generally conservative state on malpractice so the emergency doctor went down basically by reassuring the patient there was no fracture any comments you gentlemen wanna make about this for one hundred sixty
3: thousand, you can buy most of Iowa. I think, exactly. uh, last I heard,
1: yeah, they sure as hell can't buy a condo in Los Angeles because I've got a daughter looking for one of those. But I think the points to be made here are pretty simple. Number one, this patient, if she's got pain in the leg, one X-ray never rules out a fracture. I don't know why you'd say anything other than stay off of it, non-weight bearing. Set you up to see your doc. If it's not getting better, we'll take another picture. Sometimes you don't see it the first day and play that card instead of, yeah, you're fine. It doesn't make any sense from a medical legal standpoint. Secondly, if you take a picture of somebody that night in a timely manner, if the emergency docs reading and the radiologist reading are at variance with each other, somebody needs to resolve that problem you can't have somebody sitting out there for a few days and you know the usual report comes back and say well could be a ditzel there or here or something like that just make a call and say keep your splint on see your doctor as planned but at least be honest with the patient you know i can't tell you how many people i've seen who when you're honest with them they can handle it it's okay i don't think i'd
3: agree with your take on this honestly we just did in the january issue of the abstracts a paper of course I'm sure all of our listeners get the abstracts. This paper looked at people who had fallen and who were unable to bear weight thereafter, who had negative plane x-rays. CAT scan revealed a fracture in 40% of them. The mantra should be, if you've fallen and you can't bear weight, more likely than not, you have a fracture of your hip, and we need to do a better x-ray, a better study than what we've done. So we go to step two, and all of these were demonstrated on CAT scans. And CAT scans are available in our hospital 24-7. We do them at the drop of a hat. And I wouldn't be sending this person home when non-weight-bearing. That's well, not a tenable kind of thing to do. These are old people. Always No, no, no we how send people
1: home non-weight-bearing, or at least with walkers all the time. When we know the uh, diagnosis. When we know the diagnosis. The other thing is <laughs> the plain film was positive in this case. They did not need a CT scan. What they needed was a timely reading of the plain film. They needed a better reader. They needed a better reader in this case. And it was clearly read the next day. And then what you have is a problem in passing that information along and getting back to the patient. Although we have seen people who have truly negative x-rays. And on further
3: evaluation, they have these non-displaced fractures, which obviously can deteriorate and become So I think the key here is to have a high index of suspicion. Inability to bear weight is a real tip-off that if your x-ray is negative, I would really be more careful and say, let's take another study here. There are not very many of these cases, but you don't want to miss them.
1: I don't think there's any question about the fact that the physical exam, and this is my prejudice, is absolutely important. If that examination shows real pain in that hip, I don't really care what the first picture shows they're probably going to get another study because you're right. I've seen these people who I can't see it on the first film. I just can't. And the CT scan shows it virtually every time.
2: We actually went over this last month, but I want to do it again. So I see a patient, I get an x-ray. It's negative. By my reading, I send the patient home. The radiologist reads it. Now they read it as positive. Who's on the hook there, the radiologist or me? The
1: radiologist is on the hook for correctly reading the film transmitting the fact that there's a variance to the emergency department. It is then the problem of the emergency department to follow up with their patient. After all, you've consulted a doctor, a radiologist, to give you an opinion on a film. He gets back with you and says, this is what your film shows, then you have an obligation to contact the patient. What I usually do is I'll try and call the patient, I'll call the patient's primary doc if they've got it, and, and a lot of these are questionable things, you know. It's a ditzel of this or that. But when there's a significant fracture or something major on those films, I think you ought to make the call. And don't count on radiology to make those calls to the patient because they don't do it.
3: Yeah, I agree. We did go through this before, and I feel pretty strongly that your obligation is to the patient and that the call should be made to the patient. You can certainly call the private family physician and tell them as well. But you're really handing over that responsibility to the doctor and will that doctor remember to do it will it slip through the cracks will they be able to do it i want to know for certain that i've been able to contact that patient and say listen the x-ray did show you have eighteen fractures of your femur that we missed i'm sorry but this is the follow-up that you're going to need rather than depending on anybody else to do it, especially when the stakes are high.
2: And if I miss that fracture the first time, and then radiology calls the next day and says, here's the fracture, and we get the person followed up appropriately, then there's basically no risk to missing that the first time, right? It's just that's how medicine goes.
1: I don't think that that's ever a problem, particularly if you followed it up, told the patient, they return, or they go to where they're supposed to go. Those don't become cases. What becomes cases is when they don't know about it, or don't follow up at the correct time frame and something else happens. So I think that, Mel, if you followed up, you've done the best you can because we're not perfect. There's not a doc out there with real experience who hasn't had some other finding come up on a film that you've taken.
3: In the case that you mentioned, there was a $160,000 settlement because you went from a non-displaced fracture to a displaced fracture. Yes. And so in this case, there was a negative consequence of this delay in diagnosis, at least that was believed by the jury that this is now going to be more problematic or the surgery was more difficult or, you know, I'm not exactly quite sure how you would convince a jury because most of our fractures that we see are displaced and we don't view those as all that horrible.
1: Right. Well, whatever it is, the plaintiff, (laughs) Rick, we're talking about the law and courtroom and jurors. They were convinced that it was a bigger problem because they were sent home carelessly. Now it's displaced. Let's do the second case. All right. well there's a theme this month in the cases. We've got another problem between radiology and the emergency department and this is one of those cases that I know you're gonna hate me for, for bringing up. This is a failure to perform a recommended CT scan and other tests to confirm radiologists suggestion of pneumonia. This is about a woman who was sent home from the emergency department and, of course, found unconscious two days later. What happened was, this is a 2007 case which was decided in 2009 by the courts. In March of 2007, the plaintiff, who was a 47-year-old woman with a history of asthma, went to the defendant hospital emergency room with chest complaints, including tachycardia, wheezing, not feeling well, a chest x-ray demonstrated to the emergency physician really not much different than her previous chest x-rays had. The radiologist as part of his reading says, well we've got some little this and little that. I suggest a CT scan be done to further rule out any other disease. Now as you might imagine, that evening the patient was sent home. There was no official reading back of the plain film from the radiologist to the emergency physician. A reading comes back Basically, it says not much changed, but he recommends...
2: A CT scan of the chest.
1: Now, the patient comes in two days later. They confirm some pneumonia on her. She has terrible bronchospasm along with the pneumonia, and she goes on to a death later up in the hospital. This was a case where there was a $700,000 award against the emergency physician for not, and the claim is... Because he did not do a CT scan. Now, that was a suggestion which was made on a reading which he didn't even have back at the time that the patient was in the emergency department. $700,000 down. Gentlemen, what do you think?
2: Holy testicle Tuesdays. Look. uh
1: Uh, I, uh, now, I knew this was going to be your response.
2: First of all, radiologists continue to screw us in emergency medicine. My uncle's a radiologist. Actually, his son is sitting across from me right now, and I don't care. I hate all radiologists. But we ignore radiology's suggestions all the time, because they usually say clinical correlation required, and we go, thank you very much. But they'll suggest a CT scan, and I don't see that as something I need to do. It's a suggestion. I get suggestions all the time from my wife and my friends, and I don't necessarily follow them. So... This isn't telling us, though, that we have to do that. Is that correct?
1: It's not telling you you have to do it. All I'm saying is there's a bad outcome here, and the plaintiff in trial to the jury is making the suggestion that, well, if this came back and it said they should do a CT scan and they're not sure, certainly the emergency physician, the lower standard of care with regard to this question, should have called up the patient, brought her back, done a CT scan. They would have diagnosed the pneumonia, and she would have done well.
3: Well, this is such an atypical case. I don't really think that there's a real solid take-home message here. 47-year-old people are not supposed to die. And if it's such a equivocal finding of the pneumonia, I've got to believe that this lady was probably put on her Z-pack anyway, somewhere in there. So I think that in these cases, there's always this issue, is there some universal truth? And I think in the first case, yes, there was a universal truth. In this case, I don't think there is a universal truth. Somebody had to pay because 47-year-olds are not supposed to die who come in with a barely visible pneumonia. So I have some problems with this case and i certainly would agree with mel that you know a lot of these radiologists are covering their butts all the time by suggesting this additional imaging but they also say clinical correlation is advised and that's exactly what we did we made a clinical correlation and determined that no further testing was necessary especially in a barely visible pneumonia
2: but I can see those risk-averse physicians right now that read this saying, well, radiologists suggested we should get a CT scan. Because I am so wimpy and afraid of the world and I might possibly get sued, I therefore have to do this because if something goes wrong, then it's going to go for $700,000. You can hear it right now. You know the type of physicians I'm talking about.
1: Absolutely do, but understand this. Rick says this is an atypical case. All I'm telling you is it is a case. And if we're going to look at the obvious ones we got to look at some of these, which are lightning strikes as well, and this is a lightning strike. What I think is problematic is, again, the relationship between emergency medicine and radiology here. Should they be making those kinds of suggestions unless there's some real cause for this? You know, when you say, I think you ought to get an MRI or a CT, what they're saying is, I think you ought to send another 1000 bucks or 2000 bucks to the radiology department and an issue here,
3: Another issue here is, what are the stakes?
1: If they're saying, I think there
3: may be something in that person's brain, I'm not sure I would recommend an MRI, that's a lot different than saying, well, there may be some minor pneumonia here which may be more clearly delineated on a CT. I think that's totally different in terms of the potential consequences. And I don't think that the take-home message here is do what the radiologists say all the time that would be a bad mistake
2: I was joking about how I hate radiologists obviously they're good people and (laughs)
1: you've already committed yourself because they're not wrestling drugs
2: actually I think I'm really ticked off because my uncle told me 27 years ago to go into radiology and I did emergency medicine and he's got a better life than me but I'm not bitter (laughs) no not at all no no. well it does tell me one thing that we rather than being antagonistic towards radiology or we really need to be very integrated with radiology you need to have systems in place so that when these positives come up that we miss, when they have suggestions that they are clearly and in as close to real time as possible transmitted to the emergency department, I think it's no longer acceptable for them to be doing reads a week later and making suggestions that we never see. This has got to be happening in real time. they have got to Twitter it. They're going to Facebook it. They're got to do something. They're going to use some technology to get that information to us as fast as possible.
1: All right, well, I'm going to end this series on cases with a little happier note. An emergency doc sees a patient in his emergency department, 31 years of age, a male, who has a history of insomnia, psychosis, auditory, and visual hallucinations. There's no evidence here that he also had fibromyalgia, but we can assume it. The patient admitted that he had been taking GHB, for days and had not taken his anticonvulsant medications and he was very strange in his activities the emergency doc says I'm going to get him committed to the psych unit is everybody happy with this so far does this sound good they call in the psychiatrist and the psychiatrist takes a look say yeah we'll put him up on the floor he does his exam I don't know why they do this but the psych floor was on the fifth floor now If you're going to have a psych floor, either have it on the 12th floor so they're dead, or have it on the second floor so they're not hurt. But he had it on the fifth floor. So in the morning, in one of the day rooms, he throws a table through the window and jumps out the window from the fifth floor, and now he's a paraplegic. Now the lawsuit comes and they've sued, of course, the psychiatrist who saw him for not picking up the suicidal tendencies. They sued the emergency physician, who he's enjoined in this action, about did you suggest that he needed one-on-one or careful monitoring. Now, if you actually look at the monitoring, the psychiatrist had written for checks on this patient about every 15 minutes, but he did not write for one-on-one somebody had to be in the room. But there had been no suicidal... Ideations noted by the emergency docs, the nurses, the floor nurses, or the psychiatrist. So, in any event, this went through to the trial, and this turned out to be a defense verdict for all physicians involved.
3: You know, one of the things you mentioned, Greg, is that nobody had mentioned that there were any issues regarding suicidality. In that regard, I do think it's really strange that the four or five people that you cited. Was this an affirmative statement or was there no statement? If there's no statement regarding suicidality, I think that that's a little bit less helpful than the patient was asked and there's no evidence of suicidality at this time. I don't a, a, have a, a positive. I don't a, have that. An, an yeah, I don't have that there was a positive statement. Right yeah, I think that that's really, I think one of the issues here is when we're talking about psychotic patients who are bad enough that they need to come into the hospital, I don't think it would be unreasonable to ask them, have you contemplated harming yourself? That's a straightforward question that it's easier than asking them about their toilet training, and it's more pertinent. And I think that this would be kind of assumed to have occurred. So even though we don't know the specifics here, I think it's a good idea when dealing with complex patients like this who do need to be hospitalized, that you have an affirmative statement that you've asked them about the specific fact and put it in the chart because just for the reason that you mentioned and I can tell you Billy Mallon when he was working at our hospital about oh maybe ten years ago he was associated with a person who jumped out the fifth floor window of our hospital and didn't do as quite as well as your patient did so there is a key decision that people have to make about does this person require a sitter with them at all times and suicidality yes or no is part of that decision process
1: I'm gonna jump into this to say wait a minute, the emergency doctor knows there's a problem. He's called the psychiatrist. The psychiatrist is physically present with the patient. At a certain point in time, I can't practice medicine for everybody in the country. I mean, where does my responsibility begin and somebody else's end? I kind of want to know those things because am I supposed to be instructing the psychiatrist about what he's supposed to do in his job? This is carrying the responsibility of the emergency physician, as far as I'm concerned, a little too far. Mel, how do you view
2: this? No, actually, I agree with you, and it sort of follows along from the last case. We've handed the patient off, if there's been an appropriate handoff, and they, psychiatrists, should be held to a higher standard of care, caring for a psychiatric patient than an emergency physician, so although I understand why they name every physician, I would think that the emergency physician should be dropped from this case, and Greg, shouldn't your defense attorney be able to get that done pretty easily? Look, we admitted them to the psych floor, they're under your care, we're done.
1: Understand that they keep everybody in and the hospital is happy to have everybody in because everybody brings their own insurance policy to the dance and they can find somebody somewhere an quote-unquote expert who will say oh no we always warn of or direct them yada 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 to do the following And the psychiatrist of course always listen to us that's all a bunch of crap but it does happen in a lot of these cases I'll tell you I've never seen a simple or easy emergency medicine suicide or suicide attempt case. They're always murky, they're never clean, they're never easy, and they always have lots of other issues than just the simple medical care. Most times, we're not bad at the medical care. It's all these others associated things. By the way, one of the issues against the hospital was, how come on a psych floor they had tempered glass and not impact-resistant glass? You know, the glass, Rick, you always talk about that we have where people check in in the emergency room. Well, why don't they take that type of glass out and put it up on the floor? No, we have to protect windows.
3: ourselves from those dangerous emergency department people who are going to come right through that window and strangle our registration clerk. <laughs> All
1: right. Well, anyway, those are my three cases for the month, and I know that there's... Not total unanimity here of thought But yes. you know what? That's the way the world is Yes, I wanted to point out There was not
3: unanimity here Because my precision on that last case was Jeez, it's such a basic question To ask a person who's really struggling With some psychological issues I mean, they ask all kinds of other irrelevant stuff. Whether you have any thoughts of harming yourself would be such a straightforward thing to do. It would be expected of you to do it, and it would be expected that you would convey that to the next caregiver. And if the person said, no, I don't, then I think that that would be very positive on behalf of your case. Moving on, next on the docket, we've got some good Samaritan myths. Mel, where do we stand on some of these issues?
2: Well, this is interesting because this is one of those things that keeps coming up in the press, it keeps coming up in the emails we get. I know we've covered it before, but it's time to pimp Greg again. I think so. First of all, Greg, what? Um, as I am um, choking my own saliva here, which I've very difficult to. But
3: well, you got that radiologist son across the table from you. Tell him how to do a Heimlich.
2: Well, I'm only Australian. Yeah, yeah. It's very difficult for me to breathe and swallow at the same time. That's a high level function that reptiles and I share. Look, so Greg, tell us first of all about the Good Samaritan Act. Where does it come from, and what's the basic concept there?
1: Well. Most states, in fact, virtually every state, has some protection from liability for the physician or the health care worker to become involved in a true Good Samaritan kind of situation. The problem is when we go to define that situation, some states, and let's take Vermont as the example, they were the first in the country, I think, to have a Good Samaritan statute that said, not only are you not going to get sued if you stop at an emergency, but you have an affirmative duty to stop in fact it's a high misdemeanor for a physician nurse to not stop at the scene of an accident now obviously that depends on the goodwill of people as to whether they're going to become involved but it's interesting that the state not only said are you free of liability but you have a duty and so they put an affirmative duty on stopping most states basically say that if you have done in good faith and you've not committed anything that looks like reasonable or wanton recklessness you know if you stopped and the person had a sliver in their finger and you cut their head off that would be sort of unreasonable care given at the scene but most states want to do two things they want to encourage healthcare people to become involved and secondly they don't want them Sitting around all day thinking, oh my God, I put my house and my family and my kids' educational trusts up because I've helped somebody on the street. And I think it's good public policy to encourage people to become involved. I'll say this in the state of Michigan, we have no case where a doctor has stopped outside the hospital at the scene of an accident, become involved, and has ever been sued. No case in Michigan's been a state since 1837 or something like that. And the reason is this. What attorney wants to have his name associated with that case and what judge would ever let that case be filed? The moment that case is filed, the wrath and shit that would come down on him is unbelievable. And the next day, the Michigan Medical Society would put out a bullet saying, don't stop anymore. So I think that in the clear case, And here are the points that have to be reiterated every time. You don't have an obligation to the patient. You're just sort of walking by. There's no previous doctor-patient relationship. It's not your patient. You haven't sent a bill of any kind. And you're giving an emergent type of care at that moment. If it meets those criteria, go ahead and do it, doctors. You're fine. The problem is when we wander into these semi or close sorts of things and then you give advice then you're opening yourself up for liability.
2: Well, it seems pretty clear. These are good laws there to make physicians and nurses look after people on the side of the road, on the airplane, that kind of thing. But when it starts to get sticky is things like, what about you're working in a hospital? You're in a little hospital. You're in the emergency department. You're looking after your patients down there. But then let's say there's an emergency called on the floor, and you, as a good Samaritan emergency physician in this case, run up and go and help out. Or there's a situation where in your contract it says you physicians in the emergency department will respond to the codes on the floor. You don't really have a choice. That's part of the contract. Can you be protected under good Samaritan laws under those circumstances, or do they not hold in the hospital?
1: They may or may not hold in the hospital, and this has to do with the question of prearranged duty. There was a very famous Illinois case in which a cardiologist, I think it was, was hauled into the room because a patient is doing badly, not his patient, no prearranged duty, no bills sent, all those sorts of things. This is somebody who's becoming hypoglycemic. And instead of putting 10 units of insulin in the bottle, they'd put 100. And so he responded, the patient did have some brain damage, that sort of thing. But it was very clear that he was acting in a good Samaritan capacity. When you now start to talk an emergency doctor who has a prearranged duty, i.e., the contract says you will respond then it becomes a gray area and when those responses should be noted in the chart because there needs to be documentation if an action takes place the ability of your insurance carrier or the willingness of your insurance carrier to become involved has to do with do we have records and what did the contract say the smart group says in their contract our physicians will respond under a good samaritan modality as would any other medical staff physician in case of a problem on the floor. You've got to remember, if you've got a disaster going in the emergency department, you may not be able to physically go to the floor to take care of a problem. So then what are you going to do? You've signed up. You've got a contract that says you're going to take care of the emergency department 24 hours a day. Now you're running up to the floor to play, and somebody dies in the emergency department? Think about that very hard, because this could be between a rock a rock. And a hard place. And I just don't think that we want to go there.
2: If you send a bill, so I run up and I go to the person in the ICU, if I send a bill, is that all bets off at that point? I'm sending a That's bill, so therefore off. Good Samaritan is gone.
1: Absolutely. All bets off if you send a bill. Even if it's at the side of the road or on an airplane, if you actually build the patient, you've now built a standard doctor patient relationship. And if you want to bill for the service You have what we call a pecuniary interest in this activity. You're making money off it. Nobody is going to say that that's Good Samaritan at that point in time. That would be a horrendous error for you to do. You've just abrogated everything you've got to get out of this problem.
2: So I want to extend that in two different directions. First of all, let me extend it to the airplane because this has happened to me a lot. I know it's happened to you a lot. It happens to If you travel a lot, this happens. So I'm on the airplane, grandma goes down, I go help grandma out, and let's say grandma dies or something happens. If I get something from the airline, I get a bottle of wine or I get a free first class ticket, does that, again, take away the good Samaritan protection? Or does it depend on the size of the gift? If it was a cheap, crappy bottle of wine that's worth $2, it doesn't matter. Or if it's a $10,000 first class airline ticket, it does matter. Is there a difference between the gifts you might get for helping out?
1: The gift is just that. It's a gift. If you requested of them something, then you've essentially asked for a payment. If they choose to give you round-trip air ticket or a bottle of wine, and I've gotten various things like that on the plane, that is never viewed as them giving you payment, as if you've billed somebody for the services that were rendered. And I wouldn't even worry about that. I know of no case in the United States that has ever been built. I gave aid one time on Air New Zealand, I think it was, coming back. No, it was Qantas coming back to the United States. And what they gave me was half price on your next trip to Australia in the next 60 days. Now, what are the chances (laughs) you're getting on a plane to fly back to Australia in 60 days? I mean, you know, it's nuts. But I would not hesitate to take the free bottle of wine. That's not a problem.
2: Rick, I want to ask you a question as a director of an ER. Do you, maybe you do or maybe you don't, cover the ICU for intubations? It seems to me you've got a busy enough job down in the emergency department. Saying that your contract, that you're going to go cover these calls in the ICU, seems to be ridiculous to me. I understand going to help if you've got time, but as part of your contract, do people do this so that they look better to the hospital so they get the contract? Look, we'll do the ER and we'll look after your ICU intubations for you. Isn't it just ridiculous to try and do that though?
3: Well, we're the only doctor in the building, except for the OB anesthesiologist. And it is our tact to make it very clear (laughs) to the administration that they need to be in this game with us. The fact of the matter is, is that our hospital delivers six babies a day. So statistically, they're not doing anything most of the day. Now, they may have some days when they do 10 or 12, but the average is six or seven. And they're anesthesiologists. They're supposedly be able to take care of shack and airway issues because they're anesthesiologists. So our tact has been to expand the pool of people and I have made multiple communications to our administration saying that it is not possible for us to be available at all times and we'll go when we can and that the OB anesthesiologists should be put into this pool. Of course they're not thrilled by that one bit, they want no parts of it, but some of them as individuals have been quite helpful to us. So I think the hospitals are in a bad situation they need to try to find somebody to take care of these patients who are deteriorating I know some places they bring them down to the ER <laughs> that would even create more chaos in our department so I'm not so sure that's a great idea but it's an option
1: if I had a patient going bad upstairs I'd be happy to have them bring him down to the ER because for one thing I've got my personnel I've got my equipment I've got everything I need to make a decision And it's certainly better than me leaving the department, running out of the department, to have to see people and leaving a department naked. That, to me, is dangerous. And that's why the wording of the contract is so important. You cannot guarantee to be two places at once. If it says in that contract, we're going to staff the emergency department 24-7, that's fine. Then it better say, yeah, we'll respond if there's no immediate need for us to stay in the department, as would any other physician. No, it's interesting, when they get in trouble, why don't they call radiology? Why don't they try anesthesia? Why don't they try pathology? Why don't they try the physiatrist? There's an obvious reason why, because we take care of sick people. And I think that they need to be honest about this. And, by the way, if you negotiate something in that contract that says you are receiving funds for covering the hospital, there is no hospital Good Samaritan in that case.
2: You know, Rick had another question, which I never even thought of because Rick thinks outside the box. But let's say you're outside the hospital. Somebody goes down. You're rendering them care under a good Samaritan law. And then the person's really sick and needs to be transported to the hospital. You decide not to go with them. Let's even make it worse. Let's say there's not ACLS available in that area. That's just going to go BLS to the local hospital by not going with the patient. Let's say you've got a very important golf date or something. By not going with the patient, are you abandoning them that patient? You're not giving them the best standard of care at that point?
1: It would all depend on the situation involved. In most cases, with most responding EMS units, you don't do anything more for the patient than the EMS unit does. You've got to remember your greatness, smell no matter how bad you might fight on this issue, has to do with the people and equipment and other things around you in the emergency department. The transfer, in most cases, is not going to be the issue. And if there's something that you can seriously give during that transport, then the case could be made. But in most of these cases, that's not the issue. I want to get back to where emergency physicians do screw up, though. And it's not in hospital, it's out of hospital. And I'm going to give you a couple of cases, which, again, I know you're not going to like. Rick is really not going to like this one, considering what he's been doing today. But it's when somebody asks you for medical advice, a neighbor, a friend, a fellow doctor, a nurse. Just say, what do you think of this? What should we do? Or, would you write me a prescription for my kid at home? I think he's got an ear infection again, and I always give him oxicillin. Understand the doctor-patient relationship is established not by you sending a bill. It's by you agreeing to provide care. And if you want to go ahead and give people advice, understand here are the two problems for emergency docs. You have no chart. You have no documented exam. You have no nothing to defend you. And number two, you probably won't have insurance because most people pay for an insurance policy, which is site specific and chart specific. That means if there is no record, why should the insurance company pay for that coverage? If it's not at a site that they're covered for in the insurance policy, why would they pay for that? I don't understand it. Let me give you the case. We've got a case of everything. And a young doc, idealistic, wants to donate his time at young kids, I forget whether they were diabetic camp and so his family gets to stay in a cottage up there and he sees the kids and of course there's a kid with bellyache who of course next day turns out to have what appendicitis he gets sued on the case there is no arrangement he's not arranged with his carrier or anything to have coverage for that event and now the camp has no money and they have no insurance policy on this deal so now the doctor is writing me out of his checkbook checks to cover his defense I mean, how happy would you be in a situation like this? And there are ways that he could have prevented this.
2: Yes, this doesn't sound very good. Is there any type of insurance, sort of free-range doctor insurance? I'm a doctor, I'm a roving intellect, and I might help out at camp, and I might go do this and that. Or is it all situation-specific?
1: Well, we've done several things for Dax. I had several people who worked with us. I called the insurance company and said, look, we're a big animal with you. I've got two guys who are going to do good work. I want a letter that says you will cover them. They'll make a chart on each case, but that you will cover them. This is your part of doing good. And what do you think the insurance company did? They sent us the letter, because they wanted to keep the business. But the point is, we did it in advance. We didn't wait till a disaster happened, because nobody wants you to come with a disaster. I promise you that. And doctors will sue doctors who have given them advice. Nurses will sue doctors. We got everything. I mean, everybody can sue doctors if they don't like what happens. And so before you start passing out free advice to your neighbors and friends and that sort of thing, just understand no good deed goes unpunished. And you want to be a little careful with some of these things. Let me tell you two of the worst cases I have in the panoply of cases are people who thought they would be the team doctors. All these guys who grew up as jocks and love the smell of old locker rooms and things like that, think they can show up at the high school game and go onto the field and give an opinion. Be very careful about that. Has the school district arranged for insurance for you? Is there somebody that does this or that? By the way, if you're not an emergency doc or orthopedist or something like that, maybe you really shouldn't be doing that on the field. And when the EMTs arrive, maybe they should be taken to the hospital. Be very careful in these situations and always ask this question. What is the worst situation and what situation am I going to put my family and my assets at if something goes wrong here?
3: Well, we have Dave Town on our Skype line along with Greg. We're doing uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan. Dave, you're up in Tarzan, is that correct? Or thereabouts, Encino?
0: Yes, what's left of it after the biblical rains that we've had.
1: Yes, actually. Yeah. I just we saw my having...
0: dog go floating by.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, you understand, here in Michigan, here in Michigan, we're just crying our eyes out for you guys in Southern California. You know, let me get a blowtorch here so I can eat up my computer this thing will still work.
3: Go ahead, David. I need to introduce David. For those of you who have been living under a rock for the last 20 years, David is the chairman of the emergency department at View Medical Center in San Fernando, which is out in the valley, as we say. And he has been there for a long time as the chairman. We've known each other probably for at least 20 years. He is boarded in emergency medicine, internal medicine, and infectious diseases. And he's probably the most prolific researcher and writer on infectious diseases when it comes to the world of emergency medicine of anybody. Now, that introduction should not have been required but there may be one or two people out there who don't know of you Dave. Dave thanks for getting up and giving us your input on now uh, what does it take to stay out of litigation in the world of infectious disease and emergency medicine.
1: By the way Rick I have had the pleasure of being in court with the good David Talon and he is a dynamite witness Yes, uh, I think
0: I've helped successfully defend you many times, (laughs) (laughs) sometimes as a practitioner and many times as an expert.
1: Yes, well, you certainly got that whole Kaposi sarcoma case gotten rid of, and we really appreciate that.
3: You you and I were involved in a case at our hospital maybe about mm, six or seven years ago, and it's the only successful suit we have had at our hospital involved a... College kid coming home at Christmas time, who had a flu-like illness and went to a very, very well-known hospital in the area, and where she was diagnosed with the flu and they did a bunch of tests and sent her home. And she went to a better hospital the next day, ours. And the question was, when were the petechiae noticed, and what did you do about it? Because she had meningococcemia, and we elected to settle that case for fifty thousand dollars because we believed that a jury of our peers would not understand that by that time the die was cast. And you were in because you had some landmark studies in that regard, but anyway, you may not have recalled that, but you did help us out in that case.
0: Yeah, I don't recall that, but meningococcemia is one of the frequent diagnoses that you'll see in infectious disease problems in the emergency department that come to a medical legal case. So I'm not surprised by that. And this is most emergency physicians' nightmare. This is a tremendously dangerous disease. It can be rapidly progressive, the type that's primarily in the bloodstream. And the hallmark finding, the petechial rash, only occurs in about a third or half of patients and, of course, even less during the prodrome, which looks just like a viral illness.
1: But you would admit, wouldn't you, David, that the one nice thing about this disease is it's starting to head downwards as our immunization programs have taken place and as the emergency docs have become better trained. I know this was more common in my medical legal practice a few years ago and now I'm seeing relatively few of these cases.
0: Greg, you practiced in the era before vaccines and antibiotics, so I don't That's think right. that applies to most <laughs> of our listeners.
1: I understand. I took care of Lincoln and we understand that.
0: Greg, you bring up a good point because About three or four years ago, routine immunization against the most common meningococcal strains was recommended as routine for adolescents, essentially. However, the coverage is only about 30% right now. So as opposed to, let's say, the problem of fever without a source, which we've sort of eradicated that whole debate and problem, and we see young kids who have gotten HIV vaccine and Prevnar, where you're not quite as worried about that whole syndrome. I don't think we're at the point where emergency physicians can depend on the assumption of universal vaccination against meningococcus. And of course, the vaccine itself, while it is effective, it is not effective against still one of the fairly common strains in the United States, SIR group B.
3: Isn't it the fact that most colleges now are requiring the kids to be vaccinated? Before it was more optional, but I think it's become more required now.
0: You know, I'm not aware that there are college requirements for that. Certainly with most other routine vaccinations, Tanner, kindergarten, first grade, primary grammar school, you have to have certain vaccination in every state now. But I'm not aware of that as a either a public health requirement or a specific college requirement in most colleges or any colleges, but it wouldn't be such a bad idea. These days, there's a real fear and suspicion developing with vaccinations. And so there's kind of a movement against routine vaccinations amongst many patients. I don't think emergency physicians can let down their guard just yet especially for this disease.
3: You know, we've seen some papers about those tree huggers in Colorado who don't believe in immunizations, and their kids are really kind of protected because when they're one of the outliers, this herd immunity protects them. But when there's a cluster of these families that becomes larger and larger, then there are the opportunities for these outbreaks because the percentage of kids who are resistant goes down to a critical level. And there have been reported these unusual diseases that we had believed long gone because of this belief that immunizations were associated with ADD and all of these other kind of neurological problems with kids.
1: You know, humans have short memories, and I can remember when H. flu meningitis was absolutely a common disease. When I was young in this business, we were picking one up, one a week kind of thing. I haven't seen one now in five years. For people who don't think that vaccinations have helped us I think they have to relook at this literature. They always pick out the potential association of a vaccine with autism or something like that, none of which, by the way, has actually been proven. And they forget the other side of that equation is the number of young kids who don't have these terrible illnesses anymore and go on to lead normal lives.
0: Yeah, these analyses have been done, even taking the worst assumptions about vaccine adverse effects and vaccinations are perhaps the most effective therapies we have in medicine. So it's a shame, but it filters down to the emergency department because we're still going to see these cases. Meningococcemia is sort of overrepresented in medical legal cases in our specialty because it can have just terrible consequences. And the two ways it comes up as a suit Or either a previous visit a day or two before during sort of this prodrome that may actually be a viral infection that damages the respiratory epithelium, lets the colonization then enter the bloodstream and cause havoc later on. Or I think maybe the case that we had with you, Rick, was the diagnosis was made and then the lawyers will focus on delays of antibiotics on the order of hours. Whereas we know that it's difficult to show that delays on that order affect outcome. We're confronted with things in the literature like the surviving sepsis campaign, which make a big point of administering antibiotics and sepsis within an hour of recognition of sepsis. And then the issue becomes, well, when could sepsis be recognized to a jury when they're presented with a plaintiff that's missing their limbs and they review a chart? blown up the size of the courtroom and see a three-hour time period, which characterizes the delay. You know, they're thinking that the doctor had the case in front of them and then signed this out and went out to lunch before coming back a few hours later and starting the antibiotics. So, these are sort of the ways that these cases wind up in court and some of the arguments that might be made against you.
1: David, if I look back on my cases which have been infectious disease-based, I want sort of your input on this because I think that this time delay question happens all the time. It's not grounded in literature, but when I look at the people I've dealt with, for example, someone who comes in who's had a splenectomy and they've got a temperature, as far as I'm concerned, the issue in that case is going to be time of recognition or time of suspicion to first antibiotics, and that's what the discussion is going to be about whether there's any science to it or not.
0: Yeah, let's talk about splenectomy. That comes up. It's not very common. But basically, usually the way I've seen these cases is that the doctor either doesn't recognize or get a history identifying that there was a splenectomy or they don't interpret the susceptibility to severe infection that a splenectomized patient has. And so you'll get patients who come in with acute febrile illnesses The past medical history will be silent in terms of past surgical history. The exam of the abdomen, the documentation will be silent in terms of abdominal scars. And for whatever reason, the patient may or may not volunteer that they've had a spinectomy. Now, people with spinectomy don't get more infections than other people. But if they happen to get certain organisms that make it into their bloodstream, their immune system absolutely cannot contain or handle that. For example, if they get pneumococcal bacteremia, they have a mortality rate that's on the order of Ebola infection. So they're toast if that happens to happen to them. And so an emergency physician confronted with someone who has splenectomy needs to understand that. And these are cases where you should routinely assume that the patient has bacteremia and initiate parenteral antibiotics.
1: I'll tell you, one of the areas where I've seen problems is Between the emergency department and the floor, the emergency doc assumes that they're going to start the antibiotic on the floor. What I usually tell all my docs is, if you're going to give an antibiotic, give it now in the department. Just assume that there's going to be some delay of something being done in transferring that patient to an inpatient service. So anything, if it would have been done in the first couple hours on the floor, just do it in the emergency department. And why debate those kinds of issues? Just hang the antibiotic.
0: I think that's a great recommendation.
1: I think those practices
0: have largely changed. We don't see that too often anymore. But of course, when I first trained and I came out, there was sort of this concept that, wow, these antibiotic decisions are so complicated. A mere emergency physician shouldn't be entrusted with that responsibility. We'll wait till the patient gets up to the floor and the primary care or infectious disease specialist sees the patient. And, of course, we deal with time-dependent infectious disease emergencies, so we're not allowed to think that way anymore. And, of course, we have a lot of quality improvement measures that are directed at time to antibiotics, like for community-acquired pneumonia. So hopefully that sort of way of thinking has largely changed. You
3: no, know, I think it's important to point out that there are a group of people who have no spleens, but they were not removed surgically, and those are the sicklers. And those sickle medical legal cases, at least in the past, were those source unknown febrile kids. It's probably the flu when, in fact, they had pneumococcal bacteremia and they had autosplenectomized themselves over time so that their spleen was the size of a little raisin and was not able to protect them against the jelly-coated encapsulated pneumococcal bacteria. And I have seen some of those cases as well. Now, everybody who has got sickle cell, those kids are all supposed to be immunized against every infectious disease known to man. And it would be really kind of unusual to have a kid who has sickle who hasn't had the pneumococcal vaccine. But one of the problems I think that's developing is that some of the less virulent versions of those pneumococci are becoming over time the more virulent ones. And so there's being a swap out to a certain extent. Are you seeing that in the literature, Dave?
0: Yeah. And you can, in this last month's Emergency Medicine News, you can read a little something that I wrote talking about pneumococcus. And although Prevnar has reduced rates of invasive pneumococcal disease and meningitis greatly in children and to some extent in adults, remember it's a heptavalent, seven-valent vaccine. There's over a 100 serotypes of pneumococcus. And you're right, we're starting to see a shift towards more infections with strains that are not covered by the conjugate vaccine, which is seven-valent or the less effective polysaccharide vaccine that's 23-valent in adults. And the organisms are pretty smart or they're so stupid that they just have really great sex and come up with mutations. And this is a constant battle. Now, simultaneously, manufacturers are also anticipating this and developing more effective and more extensive serotype vaccines. And I also think You'll eventually see a protein conjugate vaccine replace the polysaccharide vaccine in adults. But this is all in progress.
1: Well, the one thing about the bugs is time is on their side. And it seems like the better we get at killing one, another one does pop up. And you have to keep in touch with it. Let me point out one thing I've seen with the sickle cell patients. And that is they have the three things that lead to a lawsuit. Number one, there's often antagonism with a sickle cell patient when they come into the department because their first complaint is not the infection or the temperature, it's the pain. So we get into one of these pain cycle treatment things. Those are delay in getting things done and getting the pain under control. And then sometimes familiarity does breed contempt. I don't know whether you two have seen this, but you sometimes have frequent patients and the staff doesn't take them quite as seriously as they do some of the other folks coming in. And then lastly, just getting them admitted is sometimes a difficult problem.
3: Dave, have you run into on another topic any issues with regards to the Leviquin and its cousins and these tendon problems and people saying, well, doctor, why didn't you give me another antibiotic and you gave me this one, you didn't tell me about this risk, and now I've got this Achilles tendon rupture and it's really a pain in the butt. And I think I need some compensation because this has affected my (laughs) libido.
0: I haven't. You know, there's some things that I guess we can reassure our audience that you're probably unlikely to see. Now, I was surprised because, well, I guess at my age, I was surprised that I could actually stay up to watch late night TV. And now I see advertisements from attorneys about this, just like with asbestos. But actually, I, I haven't. Seen medical legal cases come my way about this, it must be still fairly uncommon. And so I made a list in decreasing order of frequency of the types of infectious disease problems faced by emergency physicians where they get sued. Top of the list, Greg, what do you think is at the top of the list?
1: Probably meningococcemia, something like that.
0: You're close. Meningitis, by far. Meningitis. Even these days with better immunizations. But next comes meningococcus and sepsis. Of course, recognition of sepsis is sort of at the heart of meningococcemia too, especially in these cases where there isn't an obvious petechial rash. Next, Rick, what do you think's next?
3: I'm struggling here, Dave. Number three, is he, are we working down a top 10 here?
0: Well, yeah. it's probably not Conan for long. Yeah, yeah,
3: Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, Dave. Number
0: three, hey, Greg, do you want to help him as as you usually do?
1: Well, as we usually do. Now, <laughs> do we consider appendicitis to be an infectious disease process?
0: It wasn't on my list. The next one is necrotizing fasciitis. Fasciate. And the reason for that one is people come in... With just pain. You know, they'll have pain, and often the patients will volunteer, you know, some gratuitous explanation, like, oh, I think I bumped into something, I lifted something, and you wind up with these diagnoses like acute viral syndrome and lower extremity contusion or something. Viral my,
1: myositis, um, right.
0: Yeah, so that's one that's dangerous. Epidural abscess.
1: I was going to say that in my practice of this, if you look at bad outcomes where they're still alive and need a lot of support and therefore a lot of money, epidural abscess has become huge for a lot of reasons. I think the number of drug shooters in the country is fairly large. And again, there's this thing that frequently back pain does not get the serious attention it needs to get.
0: Yeah. I mean, here you've got a life or limb functioning, threatening diagnosis That a central complaint is back pain. And of course, we have just so many people we see for musculoskeletal back pain. So I think that often I would say the standard of care for epidural abscess is generally to miss the diagnosis a couple times. And I think knowing the risk groups, like IV drug abusers, is very important. And many of us are aware of that. But then you get people who have had IVs in and PIC lines or their hemodialysis patients, and they're also at risk for what's usually a staphylococcal bacteremia. And so we're seeing more patients who aren't the typical IV drug abuser with the fever and the back pain. Of course, these being subacute infections are extra difficult because they may not present with fever.
3: Dave, we did an issue pretty much exclusively related to this diagnosis because the diagnosis is made on the second or third visit, but not on the first, and i just like to reiterate and like you to kind of see if you agree. you got to look at the temperature of all of those back pain patients. 100.5 is a fever, and you need to kind of understand that that may be connected The other point that you made, I think, is really important, it is not just the drug seekers. In fact, the incidence of these infections is increasing as there are more and more people who have hardware in them for various reasons. And to be aware that a recent infection may have seeded this, it could be a cellulitis, it even could be a urinary infection. Or a respiratory infection that was bacteria which was the cause of this thing and if you're not aware of these associations you're going to go down the garden path particularly because we just tend to you know, oh geez another back pain patient one other point i think that is important is these things tend to be in the thoracolumbar area and back pain in the thoracic area is more uncommon than not because the thoracic back doesn't move very much so usually pain that's musculoskeletal is in the neck in the lumbar area This is one of the areas that you ought to be careful of if it's in the thoracic area. And lastly, there's this issue about pushing on the spinous processes. Have you heard about that? That if you find tenderness by pushing on a spinous process, that should also make you think of this diagnosis because that's not typically associated with musculoskeletal back pain.
0: Yeah, I have very little to add. Those are really cogent points. I think the thing with the fever is good, although one of the real problems here is that this is one of those deep sort of subacute infections and fever, which is really important in getting us down the path of thinking about infection, is often not present. CBCs, the white counts aren't dramatically abnormal. You don't see left shifts and bands because of the subacute nature of this. And I guess if you're to the point of ordering a SED rate because you want to exclude an epidural abscess or a spinal osteo, you probably should be doing an MRI anyhow.
1: The SED rate, David, has got to be the hallmark of the intellectually deficient if you 're to the point where you think you 're going to rule out a spinal epidural abscess with a sed rate, I think your thinking is wrong on this it 's like ordering a plain x ray and thinking you 're going to rule something in or out. You get the study of choice i mean it 's rare that I do it because it 's rare that I have the findings, but when I do have the findings. I don't want all that other crap. What I want is a study that says yes or no. Although I think the
3: problem here is the definitive study is an MRI. They're expensive. They're often not available, particularly after hours. And it would be great to know, and I don't know that we know this, what percentage of patients who have this disorder will have an elevated sed rate. My take on this is that it is the vast majority. Now, Dave, you've got to do a clinical study to affirm that, and this will have to be done through your ID network, which is, I guess, how many hospitals are involved in that?
0: 12 hospital emergency departments. Here's the problem. The answer is sort of known, Rick, but maybe I'll take on the role of Jerry. I'll be much more tolerable. <laughs> you know, the studies, yeah, I know, I know. You've taken a
1: role you can't fail at. <laughs> <laughs> right,
0: yeah. I've, you know, Jerry was one of my major mentors. I have great respect for him. But here's the deal. You can pull up series of spinal epidural abscesses, and they'll show that for the most part, the vast majority of patients have elevated sed rates. But, of course, those are spinal epidural abscesses at the time they were diagnosed. What I need is amongst these sea of patients with back pain, how does that test perform when the findings aren't so obvious, or the patient already has lower extremity weakness, or you know what I'm saying, or they're not a typical case of an IV drug abuser with a fever and back pain? So I don't think we'll ever know the answer to that question, but even in cases at the time they're diagnosed, you find some cases where this SED rate is normal, and we know the limitations of SED rate in general for just about every other type of disease except probably polymyalgia and temporal arteritis. And even there, probably, you can find a few cases where it's not that high. But it certainly makes sense that earlier on in the presentation, this is where we need the help. And amongst all these people with various disorders, it probably is not a test you can rely upon. This is a hard diagnosis. And like I said, the standard of care is to miss it. Be extra smart. Realize the other groups that are at risk besides the IV drug abuser and... Keep Greg Henry's number, and, and if you want to be successful, you can keep my
3: number, okay?
1: Got you, got So <laughs> By the way, let me tell you about the new group that I'm seeing this in. And, David, I don't know whether you've seen this or not, but the newer treatments for rheumatoid arthritis suppress your immune system to the point of unbelievability. And so one of the things that I'm looking at now is when it says their comorbidities is rheumatoid arthritis, I want to ask what drugs they're taking. Because it doesn't matter which one of those that you're taking, they tend to suppress the immune system and they get more infection. And I mean, I'm just surprised at the number of these things that are coming into to see.
0: If you want to take broad strokes at this about how we can sort of be smarter and protect ourselves, be scared of the immunocompromised patient, right? right. Uh, just be scared. The new treatments for rheumatoid arthritis, Crohn's disease, things like this, they tend to not affect the B-cell lymphocytes. Now, I know I'm talking science here and I need to go slow for you to, but <laughs> yeah. it tends to affect your cellular immunity. Now, these people in general who have rheumatoid arthritis are tremendous setups for septic arthritis and all sorts of stuff without these drugs. But now you have to worry about stuff like cystis and cryptococcal infection and tuberculosis re-emerging. So there's a whole bunch of other things to worry about as well. But I think, look, who's risky? Sickle cell patient, IV drug abuser, immunocompromised patient, splenectomized patient. Yeah, we're going to watch them longer. We're going to focus on their vital signs, maybe repeat them a few times. We're probably going to get a few more tests to look around. And we're also going to do more careful charting because we realize the consequences the chance and the consequences of a missed infection are much greater in this group, even when they look great and they just have a cold. We're going to do a more careful job.
3: So they we're down to the top four. see, so
0: you're keeping track. So then the next two I have are almost of equal frequency. One is pneumonia and another is urosepsis. Pneumonia comes up With sort of often atypical presentations of pneumonia like a patient presents with shoulder or back pain. So I don't know. That just speaks for itself. I think with pneumonia, one of the things that's interesting is we wondered how these pneumonia severity indexes, uh, the CURB-65, the PSI, might help or hurt emergency physicians in terms of making them prone to be sued or not. And in general, they tend to be generous and Help defend emergency doctors when they treat a pneumonia patient as an outpatient and there's some untoward complication that could rarely happen. So, I think the issue with pneumonia is mainly misdiagnosis if there's an unusual presentation other than just cough, you know, fever, and shortness of breath. Urosepsis, the pitfall, comes up with obstruction. And so, we'll see patients with kidney stones. A urinalysis may show a few extra white cells sometimes a lot of extra white cells that may be due to the irritation of the kidney stone, but can also be due to infection. And if that's overlooked, then a patient with complete obstruction and infection, they're at great risk and they can die very, very quickly. So that's one issue with urosepsis. The second is you've recognized the patient has urosepsis, And you don't think to look for obstruction or you find it and you don't get your urologist or your invasive radiologist to bypass that obstruction with a stent or a percutaneous nephrostomy drainage. Those are the next two on my list. Did you guys want to comment on those two diagnoses?
1: Well, one thing about urosepsis, Dave, is that it's both ends of the spectrum, the elderly, those people with stones, and then the very young. If I had to get one test, in a six-month-old or younger, it's not a blood test. It's look at the urine. Because I think if you actually actually look at the numbers of why they're sick, particularly if you look at little girls at that age, it's urosepsis, and that is the space in the body where the infection is going to hide.
3: Dave, actually, I don't know if you want to go down this path, because I think there is the literature on this is really problematic, but it does relate to the source unknown febrile, Two-year-old, and what should be the appropriate evaluation of these kiddies? We used to have occult bacteremia as the nasty disorder of kids that we were unaware of, and we followed the Larry Baroff, or not the Larry Baroff, <laughs> technique of 15,000 white count and 103 fever and all this other stuff, and that was easy compared to this occult pyelonephritis If it's a febrile kid, and you're going to blame it on You're an infection. You're not talking about a bladder infection. You must be talking about pyelonephritis. And I've been wrestling with this because the implications are that we have missed bajillions of these kids in the past. And I think it's just a real quagmire. I'm not interested in putting a catheter into every one-year-old girl who I can't say, well, it's probably a viral infection.
0: Yeah, I think you should get Larry on here and and beat him up. But where I see these in terms of what we're talking about, the medical legal cases, it's the very young children, the neonates, and it's usually under a month who have a fever, and those patients we are still, you know, I think, especially as emergency physicians, I think we have to be pretty uniformly very careful with, and the default is to presume that they're septic and empirically treat them after they're cultured. Of course, as you get to term healthy infants over the age of one month, and you're giving the borderline case at two months, they're prone to the vaccine-preventable infections for which they're not yet immunized. (laughs) And they're also somewhat prone to some of the early pathogens you see in the neonatal period. The risk tends to be much less than in the patients, the children that are under one month. So you can do testing and observation and look for a source. And in the absence of a source and a stable kid with laboratory parameters that are somewhat reassuring, you can arrange follow-up, careful follow-up, and still practice within the standard of care.
1: David, I want to make that one point here that you're going to give me, before we're done talking, a number because this has fallen in my career from... We used to work up kids 18 months and under as a septic workup. Now it's gone down to, I think the number that we're using around here is eight weeks. If they're febrile, they're under eight weeks, they kind of get blood and urine and stuff from every spot in the body. But I mean, where does this begin and end? Is the eight-week number now the appropriate number? Is it six weeks? What do you do?
0: I would say that the eight-week number is approximately where we practice. I think it also depends on the practitioner's experience and comfort with the child. It depends on the type of home situation and connection with a close connection with a pediatrician. All those things come into play. If you do not routinely see young children, then your ability to assess their stability, I don't think is as good as someone that does. And you may have to rely on more tests and a longer period of observation in a patient who's nine weeks or three months. So I think what you're describing is reasonable and it's probably what most people do. And as a textbook standard, it certainly could be defended.
1: You can't go wrong with a 12-hour follow-up on any kid who you're not sure about.
3: David, you have nicely skirted my question, and frankly, I don't think I want an answer to your recommendation for a two-year-old source unknown fever. I don't think anybody would really argue about the necessity for doing the septic workup in the one, two, three-month-old kind of kid. And when we talk about that, intrinsic to that is a lumbar puncture. It is the disorder that is kind of the most serious, if you're going to pick one, of infections in the lungs or the urine or the brain. So what do you think about this idea from a medical legal point of view of once you have gathered those specimens and sent them to the lab and you don't really think that this kid is likely to have a serious infection, but you don't know because no cultures are back, would it not be a reasonable thing to treat this child with some kind of relatively aggressive antibiotics pending the results of those tests when you respond to an attorney, would it not be well, doctor, you didn't know the results of these things. Would it not have been prudent to do this for little Johnny?
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, look, presumably you're doing a lumbar puncture because you think there's some reasonable suspicion of bacterial meningitis.
3: What if the child is two months old? and I have no idea. The child looks okay, but I'm not sure.
0: Well, there's a gradient of suspicion, but you're suspicious enough to do the lumbar puncture. And I think, first of all, in that two-month-old, we're usually not delaying our lumbar puncture to get CT imaging, although sometimes that might happen, it might be indicated, and so you can get your LP straight away if the fluid looks cloudy, run, don't walk to your nearest Pixis machine. And if it doesn't, then I don't think there's a great harm in giving the antibiotic. You've got the fluid, it's like antibiotic cheap, few side effects. My habit is to give the antibiotic and then let's take a look at the results. But, of course, you could make the case, and I think you understand the risk-benefit in a patient where you think that diagnosis is of low likelihood and wait your hour, hour and a half for the results. And the chance that you're going to be wrong is low, but you might be. And then someone may be asking you why you waited.
1: David, let me ask you a question. Are you getting a CT scan on a febrile kid who's moving all four extremities, has no focal finding? I never get CT scans on those kids. They just get rolled up, fluid taken antibiotics started. I don't think the literature defends that kids who are moving all their extremities, you ever find anything on the CT.
0: No, it doesn't, but occasionally, no, you do. And I'm sure we've all discussed this to some extent. It's unlikely that the LP itself is going to hurt the child unless there's some actual obstruction to CSF. But more the reason to consider CT in some individuals we'll just talk in general, is that there may be other intracranial diagnoses. And we just had a child that was referred for possible viral meningitis. They looked good and they were ultimately diagnosed with a frontal subdural empyema or brain abscess. Let's just call it a brain abscess. That's unusual. (laughs) If one had gotten the CT scan, there would be no need for the lumbar puncture. And then the opposite is also true. We've had cases at Oliveview where in adults, they've sort of tried to follow this kind of conservative path for only doing CTs where there was a you know, compromised state, focal abnormalities, altered mental status, whatever, and not done the CT, gotten the lumbar puncture, found a pleocytosis, admitted the patient, put them on empirical antibiotics for bacterial meningitis, only to find later that the patient wasn't responding, get a CT scan and find a big brain abscess with edema and now shift in retrospect, it kind of would have been nice to know that ahead of time. So I think that... You understand
1: my dilemma here. Yeah, I think
0: in children, I don't routinely get CT. I try to be extra smart. If there's something else going on, perhaps a history of trauma, perhaps a chronic ear or sinus infection, congenital heart disease, all these things might make an individual at greater risk for a space-occupying lesion if there's a history of HIV, cancer, things like that, especially in older individuals, I more routinely get CT scan. I think we're not often considering doing LP, we're not often considering CNS diagnoses, and so I don't think I'm gonna break the bank with one more CT scan. You get a lot of very important actionable information, even negative information. So my bias leans more towards doing more CTs, although again, in the typical child, I don't think you routinely need to do that.
1: I guess I'm the stingiest guy in the world about CT, but I also think that's how comfortable you are with examination skills and all those other things which have now gone out of style in medicine.
2: Well, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, that was Dave Talon, who's a professor of emergency medicine at uh, UCLA and director of emergency medicine at the View UCLA emergency medicine department and the man who gave me my first job out of residency. So we thank Dave, and we will hopefully speak to Dave or Greg or one of the other RD gurus at all of you again soon. I thought that was very helpful.
1: All right, we're back to wine of the month, and again, carrying on our tradition that we're not going to talk about those fancy bottles of wine. I'm going to give you a couple to think about, and I know that the true wine connoisseurs are going to go crazy. But the 2008 Behringer Alluvium Blanc, and this is from Knights Valley, napa 16 bucks a bottle it is absolutely fantastic and i think that if you're gonna drop some coin that's the one to do another big name vintner who has consistently done a great job the 2007 robert mondave cabernet Sauvignon at 28 bucks a bottle and even the big wine critics are saying how can they make a wine that good for twenty-eight bucks a bottle now the last one which i have tasted which i want to comment on is let's say there's a huge event and somebody saved your life or your kid or something you want to give them a nice bottle there's a small vineyard in california called vineyard 29 which is in napa and it actually produces maybe maybe eight thousand five thousand cases a year something like that not a lot of wine But my kudos to them, their 2007 Cabernet Sauvignon received in the wine tasting test a 98, beating the French, beating the Italian. I mean, this beat the pants off of everybody. And let me just tell you, it is fantastic wine. It's a little pricey per bottle, but a lot less money than all of the fancy names. And this is great stuff.
2: So there you go. Actually, I've got a couple of people who work for a living in the office here, and they want you from now on to do the $5 a bottle wine next (laughs) month. Maybe, Maybe Tom is saying as high as $10, and then he'll listen. Well,
1: I want to mention one thing. There is a new book out by Parker, and it's called Parker's Wine Bargains, the world's best wine under $25 a bottle. And I'll tell you, it's now become one of my Bibles. If I go into a wine store, I've got that. I've got it with me. And it is a real treat. And this is one of the great wine experts of the world who says, here's stuff that anybody can afford or most people can afford. Nothing more than 25 bucks a bottle. I think this is a great book.
2: Your Bible, so does it say, and the Lord said unto Moses, buy the 78 cab, for it is good.
1: (laughs) Essentially, that's what it said. It says, you know, pass on the Chateau Lafitte.
2: Actually, I just want to say one last thing about Wine of the Month. Two great movies that I watched recently again. One was Bottle Shock which is about the early sort of California wine period and a competition that they go in against the French. And the other one is Sideways. Really a funny movie. Yes,
1: it's both great movies.
2: All right, I thought that was a great session. Thank you. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Bye.